coming to you from a cozy little condo high atop old Fort Ward, Atlanta. Welcome, Welcome to The Ron Show on America One Radio. Here's your host, Ron Roberts. All right, and a happy Thursday to you. Thunderstorms rolling through the Atlanta area. Hopefully you're getting a little bit of the rain without any of the strong winds or gusts or any of that good stuff. But in the meanwhile, joining me this afternoon is uh, my good friend, Coker University sociology professor, all-around good guy, former congressional candidate, and we're going to bend his ear about being a congressional candidate again, my friend Mal Hyman. Mal, how's your summer been? Terrific. I've been able to enjoy the Grand Canyon, was able to visit the Rockies, get some hiking in, got to Iceland for the first time, talked with people about cultural change there, and mm. enjoyed the natural wonders, and uh, I've had some time to read and talk politics, so... Uh, yeah, it's been a great summer, and it's good to catch up with you as always. Well, I uh, I'm only a little miffed that you went to Iceland and you're not a social media. Guy. I mean, you're on social media, but you're not a social media guy. You don't check in everywhere you go. You don't post uh, a photo collage at every stop along the way. So <laughs> I'm looking forward to seeing some photos. Fo- you took some photos, didn't you? I hope I did. The colors are fantastic. You can. Walk on the glaciers. One of the volcanoes was erupting when we were there. Oh, my gosh. They've got these natural springs that you can bathe in and uh, wonderful waterfalls to hike to. It was, uh, it was really spectacular. Wish it wasn't so pricey, yeah. uh, but a delight and glad to send some pictures. Yeah, uh, my uh, one of my softball teammates and his husband and their foster son uh, went to Iceland as well. And, and they are social media people, so we got to see... Lots of Iceland from them, but I'd still like to see what you got to do. Anyway, let's dive into uh, what I what I reached out to you today to talk about. Uh, I don't know if you've had a chance to read this piece yet, but it's a it's as a sociology professor and a sociologist, this has to be fascinating stuff here. David Brooks wrote an opinion piece that uh, appeared in the uh, New York Times yesterday. The title: "What if we're the bad guys here?" And essentially, the premise is that we focus so much on how sturdy the support for the Oft indicted, twice impeached, uh, con man, uh, you know, deluxe in Donald Trump is we focus on how his base of support just solidifies and is unwavering. But David Brooks, who is something of a centrist, maybe a center right, depending on who you ask, uh, you know, opinion generator. He, he kind of makes the point that what if the reason these folks are so unwavering in their support of just a destitute man just a uh, just a despicable person to 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 want to follow but what if the problem all along is that it's it's us that's the problem that there's this elitism mentality that comes from a works with their hands class of folks that doesn't see the benefit of upward mobility and or 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 benefit in any way from meritocracy and first question i want to ask you have you had a chance to read this piece yet yourself i just read it uh, I thought he got part of it right. I think Trump's solid support has eluded good analysis for years. Mm-hmm. Um, it's perplexing to uh, most sociologists and political scientists. Mm-hmm. It's a cult following. Uh, I would always get uh, uh, through my a critique of Trump when I was running for office by saying he was the poster boy for the seven deadly sins. And most Democrats would go along with that and 
And I honestly think that's the case. On the other hand, David Brooks taps into something that I think is insightful in that, you know, if we turn the clock back to 2016 as well as 2020, most powerful force among uh, Republicans has been Trump mm-hmm. with an anti-elite perspective that the system has lost the mandate from heaven, that the system is corrupted. And I will fight for you, even though he's a flawed character. And on the progressive side, or let's just say the Democratic side, the most popular candidate uh, that has the most spirited following, one might argue, was Bernie Sanders, who had a similar analysis that the elites got it wrong. Uh, I, I would um, agree with Sanders' analysis of what has happened to the economy. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's the the path we need to go. But that type of split of populism from the right and left Mm -hmm. is what we saw recently with the election in Spain and prior to that in Greece and in England and all over Europe and in Brazil. The traditionalists bolstered by a right-wing media, Mm -hmm. which does allow people to get in their own echo chambers, tends to solidify that view And I'm afraid what we got from Biden was a lot of pragmatism, Mm -hmm. fairly effective in getting legislation passed, but too little, too late, especially when there's a a right-wing echo chamber that a lot of people go to. They don't like listening to views that are different from their own, and the system of justice is seen as being weaponized against Trump who is largely a victim. And that narrative, while I think is completely misguided, is the one that's uh, heartfelt and held by his followers. Uh, And it's it's not much challenged on Fox or right-wing talk radio or on the blogs. So I think David Brooks did us a service. You know, it's the difficulty of writing a short article. Maybe he would have included media and the international examples, Mm -hmm. you know, if he'd had a little bit more time, but I thought it was a good piece. I'm always sort of mystified, and I I think you tapped on this a little bit as well, that we we see a base of support, and he has right now about 54% of likely GOP primary voters saying they're going to vote for him. This base of support, and and I don't like the stereotype, but a lot of it is the non-college educated, uh, white, Exurban, rural, uh, maybe maybe not even a high school education, if that. And it, I don't understand how someone who was born wealthy literally has gilded furniture and wallpaper wherever he lives. Lives on a private golf resort now in Florida. I just I, I it it boggles the mind how he connects. Is it and and this is just a guess here. Is it that he kind of talks at their grade level? Yes, he talks um, uh, as if he's at the World Wrestling Federation. (laughs) He's learned, and this is not the easiest thing for beginning teachers or those involved in politics to master, but to be able to speak to a ninth to 12th grade audience and do it with passion. And he's an extrovert. He is an excellent campaigner right up there with Clinton and Obama and Reagan. He just does it at a simpler, 
more sarcastic fashion. And among the working class, there's a sense of, okay, he's got a lot of money and he's, he's got women and he, he doesn't do the right thing, but he's fighting for us. And I think particularly among the, the working class, there's a sense of, hey, you know what? It's a jungle out there and this guy's kick-ass tough. Yeah, he's got rough edges and sometimes he makes me wince, but he's fighting for us. I think that's the, the gut level that I get when I talk to my students that, that are right wing. There's that sense of you got to have a fighter and he's a fighter. So, uh, I think he plays the victim. I think he he's does a that. false fighter. Mm. He didn't fight for their economic interests. Right. He really doesn't understand their culture, but he is able to play one as a politician. The thing, and the nobody thing else is out there doing it. And it is, I think, with a, a, a national platform, mm. not everybody can rise to the level of a national platform. You have to be an extrovert. And he he did it, and he came in with about 30 million Twitter followers. Yep. That most candidates don't walk onto the dais with. No, you're right. Right. No matter how good a governor you are, Gavin Newsom isn't going to do that. Right. No matter how good a senator you are, no one's close to that. Mm -hmm. He had been planning this for a long time. He wasn't starting from zero. He had the money, and he had already a significant following. What, what flummoxes me is, you, you mentioned this, he, he didn't really fight for his base's economic interest. And you could argue that some of the things that have happened in the Joe Biden presidency to date have been targeting his base of support. We've seen manufacturing in ruby red states and red counties within red states that are going to pay dividends for decades to come. Uh, but we also saw where... If there was this perception in 2016 with the Obama voter, particularly within the uh, the, the African American community, that there was a dissatisfaction with his two terms that they didn't gain anything. So Hillary sort of suffered the fate of meh, but Donald Trump didn't amongst his base, who also suffered mightily under his presidency. What do you think the difference is? Oh, that's a great question. Uh, the president isn't as powerful an economic actor in this global economy as they had been 30, 60 years ago. Okay. Still, the president gets credit for a strong economy and blamed for a relatively weak one. Mm -hmm. Now, there were gains under Obama, and we did pretty well on balancing the budget, mm -hmm. but jobs are still hemorrhaging. Democrats weren't able to push through much of their agenda. In fact, I'd say most of their agenda. Mm -hmm. So people didn't see an awful lot of gains. The inequality after the Obama second term was still the worst since 1928. Mm -hmm. Here it comes back to David Brooks, who is, talks more about culture. I think banks and big corporations never wanted to share those profits or pay their fair share of taxes. Mm -hmm. And recognized with Trump that they could get further tax breaks without investing in production or research and development. So they went for the short-term profits with the Trump. Speaking to the base, I think we've got over half of the country living paycheck to paycheck. Mm -hmm. And yeah, there have been a lot of changes with the Biden administration pushing through the Inflation Reduction Act 
doing a good job with COVID relief. Mm-hmm. I mean, they have invested in new forms of energy in an unprecedented fashion, but a lot of people aren't seeing it much yet. Right, right. And we're seeing that in polling, even done by CBS, that 60% of the country doesn't think the economy's doing all that well, mm. but profits on Wall Street have, I mean, at least until they downgraded the American currency, mm. have gone up. So uh, this isn't shared universally, and a lot of people feel frustrated from it. And if they're frustrated, they blame the administration that's in power, even though a lot of the reforms proposed by Democrats got blocked by Republicans in the House of Representatives. So I want to put a pin in that. We're going to come back after a quick break. We're on with a sociology professor from Coker University, my good friend, Mal Hyman. We're talking about the David Brooks article in the New York Times that kind of taps into the disconnect between the Trump voter and everybody else. Here on The Ron Show, America One Radio, or wherever you podcast. Welcome back to The Ron Show, Thursday afternoon. I'm on with my good friend, sociology professor at Coker University, Mal Hyman. Mal, when does class get started for you? Pardon? When does class start back for you guys? Early. It's the 15th of August. Phew. It's just too hot for school to be starting back. I mean, I talked about this last week with the, or the, earlier this week with the public schools. The colleges seem to be getting in on it too. I, am I misremembering or did schools and colleges start in like late August, early September, not that long ago? They used to. And it seems like students would prefer it like this yeah. so they can have more time off for Christmas break. Uh, okay. And there's competition for students. That's true. I got you. So we were talking uh, before we had to break real quick about uh, the, the effects of trickle down, not trickling down to the uh, to the voting base, which I think we all like, readily accept. Uh, the problem I've always had with those who complain about it on the right is, well, yeah, it's been like this since a guy named Ronald Reagan was president. And it's not exactly popular to raise taxes or talk about raising taxes, even though you only want to raise them on the higher income earners. But every time we do that, it's politically it's it's a political punching bag to to the to those on the right. So I, there's that disconnect. But talk to me about why the effect or the lack of an effect of the trickle down uh, supply side economics that this country has been in the grips of since the early 1980s. Why that doesn't trigger a, a, a light coming on in the head of the MAGA voter? I think it's arcane. It's difficult to understand. Uh, way back to President John Adams said more problems are caused by ignorance of economics mm. than venality. Oh, wow. Evil. And he was the second yeah. president, so if it's been going on back then, you know. <laughs> exactly. And it's it's not counterintuitive, but it's not the easiest thing to discuss. Mm. Uh, our students in high school, if they get to the senior year, will get one semester that's split between government and economics. And clearly that's not enough. And having taught at that level, the books tend to be pretty conservative. So they aren't given the tools to understand it very well. Further, with a fractured media landscape, they're not listening to even a CNN. Um, That's been demonized. So if it's not criticized, it's just complicated enough that people may intuitively think about it, but it it really isn't front and center in their thinking that they've been betrayed by this. When I ask my students, conservative, you know, the 
all of them, you know, what the taxes were under Republican President Eisenhower on the top 1%. Nobody is close. It was 90% back then. Yeah. And that way we were able to have the infrastructure investments. We were able to make college affordable. Uh, minimum wage was higher. Uh, all, all sorts of other public investments were possible. Uh, and maybe that was too high. Kennedy got criticized for lowering the taxes on the wealthiest 1% to 77% because he thought it would invigorate the economy. Uh, with the last tax break under Trump, very few people seem to understand that 85% of the profits went to the mm -hmm. top 1% and that a very small percentage of the money went to production and research and development, mm -hmm. which would have created new jobs mm -hmm. had we targeted the tax break like that. But there's also seen there's also the the, the two pronged uh, problem of most people don't understand what a ninety percent income tax bracket means. They think, oh my God, they're going to take ninety percent of their income. And also, there's the the conundrum of if you do raise taxes on corporations and the wealthy, they tend to punish those of us who aren't among them. By doing things like like you talked about, uh, the the lack of jobs, uh, the lack of consumption, the slowing down, uh, the the purposeful slowing down of the economy. Am I am I grasping it? A conspiracy there, or is there some legitimacy to that? I think you're right, and the taxes then were higher on corporations, but they were much higher on individuals. Hmm. You can tax corporations so much that they're just going to raise prices yeah. or leave the country, right? So there's going to be a limit on how much, you know, the liberal agenda can work. Mm. Democratic socialists would say, you know, you're caught in a paradox there. And ultimately, some sectors of the economy ought to be publicly run. Mm -hmm. Healthcare being the one that they would change first or railroads or, or more cooperatives and banking. Mm. But, yeah, you're right. The costs would get passed along if the taxes were just higher on corporations. On the other hand, if they're higher on individuals, then individuals are, are going to pay more and there's more money for public expenditure, infrastructure, schooling, and the like. So I'd make that, that point on it. So that being said, we're trying to figure out, are we just, like, even in this conversation, are we just talking too lofty or talking above uh, or, or, or talking down to uh, the MAGA voter in a way that just doesn't connect with them? What what does the left have to do? To, because obviously the right doesn't seem to have the, the stones to want to tackle it. I mean, Chris Christie's kind of trying. He's chipping away at it, but he only has 2% of the vote over there. It's still very early, and the noose is tightening around Trump from a number of different directions. Um, but he, he does have quite a hold on his followers. Mm -hmm. And you're right, progressives, including moderate Republicans, have to frame the issue. You don't get much time to frame it. I mean, part of this has to be, how do you make America great again? Minimum wage has to be a living wage. Everyone is guaranteed health care. No one goes bankrupt because they don't have health care. Mm -hmm. Child care and education become affordable to create more freedom and opportunity. I mean, you have to use their language to initially 
catch their interest. Mm -hmm. And we're also stuck. Once we leave the economic issues, which moderates and progressives can clearly win if they speak in a straightforward language, Mm there is no winning on cultural issues. And there really is a cultural divide that breaks down very slowly. Teachers in a classroom don't do much to break down bias on questions of gender and race. Those move slowly and more culturally. And within a mass media environment where Fox is shameless Mm. in scaring people against gay marriage or abortion or race issues, Mm. absolutely shameless propaganda that Goebbels would envy. (laughs) It's hard to make much headway. And I'd like to make another point having said that. Hang on to that argument if you don't mind. It'll just be seconds. Back in a few minutes with Mal Hyman on The Ron Show. America One Radio, wherever you podcast. This is The Ron Show on America One Radio. All right, so I'm joined with my good friend, Coker University sociology professor, former congressional candidate, should be running for president, honestly. When you heard what he just how he framed that economic argument, why Congress when you could run for president, Mal? Anyway, thanks for joining us. I appreciate that. <laughs> no, you, 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 you do have that. You do have that that smart but plain smoking, uh, plain spoken style that I think uh, the le- or the country needs, not just the left, but the country in general. But uh, thanks for giving us I the may time run again. Thanks, I, I appreciate that. So, oh well, good. We'll we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, you, of course, in the st- is it still the seventh district in South Carolina? Um, that yep. uh, Tom Rice used to occupy. I don't, who is your congressman now? I've lost track of who that would be. Russell Fry, oh. who was a yeah. supporter of Trump, and there Trump came into the district to support him. Yeah. So you <laughs> you name dropped and totally went Nazi there. You name dropped Joseph Goebbels, and you talked about the propaganda and the anti-gay and 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 racist tropes, and even the anti-trans movement, which Donald Trump actually has been targeted for being pro-LGBTQ by the likes of the Ron DeSantis movement. So talk to me about why the uh, propaganda, the, uh, the, 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 the white nationalist propaganda that Trump rode the wave on isn't working for Ron DeSantis as he's trying to take Donald Trump down a peg when he actually has ammunition to that base that says he's not even actually as xenophobic or racist or as in line with your Nazi tendencies as I'd like to be. I'm paraphrasing, of course. I don't think there's that much room to the right. And he's not that good a speaker. And Trump already had a base that he built on. He's better better now as a communicator than DeSantis. He was better two years ago, four years ago. And at a personal level, DeSantis hasn't been able to branch out and, and find other issues uh, that will help resonate for him um so that i I just don't think there's much room to the right Mm. and i think there are many trump supporters that might not be as racist Mm. or sexist as we think but they thoroughly demonized the democrats so that people don't want to go there i've talked to a number of trump people that don't see themselves as racist right uh so that to get into the nuances of critical race theory and wokeism, I just 
for low information voters, I guess there isn't that much room to the right. Hmm. I interrupted because we had to take a hard break. You had a second point you wanted to make. Do you recall what that was? That the gains, even in blunt spoken form, as I tried to share on making America great again, Mm -hmm. how an economic agenda from moderate progressives would help the working class, which is the bet of the Biden wing of the party, that most of the people in the Trump base fear the cultural changes more than they desire the incremental economic benefits. And that takes us back to the David Brooks article that we started the conversation about, because I think that was a pretty salient point, that there is, uh, I think, a, a strain within his base that fears so much of the changes culturally, and maybe even technologically going on. I sat through an AI uh, chat GPT symposium today and how to involve it in real estate. And honestly, I came away from it like feeling a lot better about AI than I did going in. At first, I'm like, oh, I don't want AI involved in my business because you know, I, I watch so many Terminator movies. And so even I am guilty and susceptible to being scared of change until I dip my toe in the water and learn about it. Yeah, I mean, and... Trump is very clever at playing at people's fears. Mm-hmm. The classic demagogue that Aristotle warned us about. Mm-hmm. And Aristotle didn't believe democracy would be able to be sustained because people would fall prey to demagogues. Well, I think the jury's still out on that. So <laughs> it is. It is still out. I agree with you. And we've been. He is a good storyteller. Mm-hmm. He is a classic con man. And his people are staying with him, and they've been able to demonize the Justice Department. You know from past conversations, I'm no great fan of how the Justice Department caved in at a number of phases in American history, especially when it comes to political assassinations. But they go in cycles, and now it's a far more professional FBI, far more professional CIA, far more professional Justice Department, but it's been delegitimized. And there's nothing within a four-year term from Joe Biden that's going to do to legitimize it. And, so the, and you can't even... You, you, him as the, that the Justice Department has been weaponized against Trump the victim. Yeah. And you can't even point out that the FBI director, Chris Wray, was a Trump appointee, that that most of the folks that are testifying against Donald Trump were his own people. It, it just does not click with his base. It, it might eventually, if the, those talking points are repeated over and over and over again, that these are conservative Republicans that are passing judgment on him. I think the hope was that Republicans in, in the primary would have some traction criticizing Trump, and they might. I mean, it's still early. And and frankly, I think all that's going to happen is maybe he loses 5% of his base Mm. or 8% so that maybe somebody could challenge him within the Republican Party. And ultimately, the, the hold on that party is diminished. And maybe once... Once it looks like people can fire away at him, like uh, Chris Christie is able to, or Hutchinson, 
that, uh, you know, maybe some of the true believers will drift away, but they see themselves as part of a movement that is noble with him. Mm -hmm. And they see the other side as still inefficient on the economy Mm -hmm. because they're not seeing much in the way of gains. Mm -hmm. They're not seeing, they're not hearing somebody articulated in blunt fashion how the working class is being helped by Biden. Mm -hmm. So his sway has, has continued. I honestly had a lot of optimism for the Chris Christie campaign when he first announced and started making the rounds on media circuits and doing town halls. I don't know if you saw a CNN town hall. I, I, I was kind of like pinching myself. I'm like, you know, this guy actually isn't all that bad. I mean, he used to be just a terrible human being. I don't know if it's just that the, 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 the Trump era has softened me to how deplorable Chris Christie is, or maybe he's just gotten better and softer over time. But I found myself going, this, this is the Republican voice that the part that the party and even the country, whether he wins or loses, this is the Republican party that I kind of remember growing up and that would sort of return that entire movement to some semblance of sanity. But he's also, what? he's also, you know, that New Jersey, New Yorkish, you know, uh, norm, you know, talks, you know, talks not at a super elite level. I, th- that's why I figured I was like, if, if anybody's going to take Trump down, it's this guy. Cause he's very plain spoken as well. And kind of comes from the same area of the country, very, you know, lunch palish in his demeanor and et cetera and so on. And it just hasn't happened. It's still early, but I think you're right. If somebody were to be speaking a little less lawyerly and have a Southern accent, they would check off enough boxes that at an emotional level, I think they'd get a better hearing. Hmm. I think he is the old-fashioned Eisenhower Republican that cares about the country, mm-hmm. just has a different view of how we're going to create more prosperity and security. Right. And he's a smart guy. He used to be a U.S. attorney. Right. You know, a lot of the Republicans that are in the primary are making the bet that when Trump gets arrested, <laughs> they're going to be able to pick up his base, and that's the only way to win. But they haven't seen the fact that he keeps taking bullets and getting stronger like some comic book villain. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree. I agree. And, you know, it's MSNBC and CNN commentators being perplexed that people aren't going after him. But maybe these charges are starting to be such that a few more Republican candidates will start making criticisms and there'll be a little bit more traction. Right. We are still early and the DOJ is, is literally handing them these issues. Um, I mean, this would be high treason if other people were taking these documents, uh, national security level, and not securing them and sharing them with people. These are war plans. This is a major scandal, but it is fluffed off by Fox News and uh, right-wing talk shows. So we need more Republicans that finally decide that the rule of law is important. I mean, we have a situation where one political party is willing to steal the future from humanity on climate change Mm -hmm. and not speak out on it and will allow the Constitution to be subverted. It is that simple. And we only have a few voices 
that seem to be speaking out to defend the Constitution and the rule of law. That's how mad yeah. things are yeah. at this point. Yeah, I mean, like I said, you've got Chris Christie, you have Asa Hutchinson. I think those are the two candidates that are almost always universally condemning uh, Donald Trump's antics and indictments when they come out, which seems to be coming, as David Brooks mentioned, on a weekly basis. Uh, Nikki Haley kind of wanders into the lane every once in a while to say some things that, well, you know, I didn't really like that. But she's not gone full-on anti-Trump. Um trying to think there was one other candidate that came to him, but there's so many candidates it's hard to keep track of again uh, you know uh Vivek Ramaswamy he is full on trumper um Mike Pence tried to I guess a little bit I mean he made his strongest statement I think with the most recent indictments uh this week uh, about the argument uh, against a second Donald Trump presidency the, the man was the man was nearly killed by his own base of followers and 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 he can't come to terms with with you know condemning Donald Trump um but we saw the entire party do this after January 6th. Lindsey Graham, you saw him. He's from South Carolina as well. Famously, I'm out, I'm done, yada, 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 January 6th. And then days later, he's down at Mar-a-Lago licking boots again. It's, I, I, feel- I think we're looking at psychopathic behavior, mm-hmm. people willing to put their own career above country. And it's sad to see it happen, but I think that's what's happening. Now, I think that happens on a regular basis with a lot of corporate and banking leaders that put short-term profits Mm. above the country and above the earth. Mm -hmm. It's it's similar psychopathic behavior. Mm -hmm. And I think to flip to the followers of those who are the best storytellers who claim they're doing it for prosperity for all of us or for traditional values or for freedom, uh, they're able to to spin a story. I think the tendency is for most people, and it's probably always been true, to go to news sources that they feel most comfortable with, yep. that don't challenge them too much. I mean, 120 years ago, you let's say you're in some place like Chicago, there's a dozen different newspapers. You can get the conservative newspaper, the liberal paper, the socialist paper, so they're true. all there. Now, I want to mention that this had been talked about as a phenomenon in the 1940s by a non-traditional political sociologist named Eric Hoffer. He was a longshoreman in California, keen sense of politics, clearly passionate, read all sorts of perspectives, and has a book called The True Believer. Mm Mm-hmm. Thoughts on the nature of mass movements. Hmm. And he says, you know, organizers within the Nazis understood they had a chance to swing over communists because these are disgruntled people Hmm. that want significant change. And they're not sure how to go about getting it, but they are angry at the status quo. And talks uh, talks about communist organizers knowing that they can recruit from the Nazis Hmm. because these are people who are very frustrated and much easier to get than the petty bourgeois or the labor organizers. See, he talks about mass movements and the nature of true believers. And I think that's what we have with Trump and these cult-like followings, which were a bit like the followings of fascism in the 1930s in Europe or communism in the Soviet Union or China, 
uh, that there are a number of people who are strong adherents. And these people have lives that aren't really going anywhere. They don't have a sense of hope on their own, Hoffer argues, mm -hmm. but they have a sense of hope through the leader and what they purport uh, to stand for. And they don't really have hope in the system to change itself. And I think with Sanders followers and with uh, Trump followers, there's not a lot of trust in the system to reform itself, that, that people are looking for far more significant change. I think there's good reason for that distrust, too. <laughs> oh, well, that dovetails back to David Brooks saying that the elites have done this to themselves. Yes. He's not going to spell it out because he's always backed big business and corporations yep. with his form of kind of center-right republicanism, which is a lot more thoughtful than most Republicans. Mm -hmm. But I think, you know, as we saw in NAFTA, hollow out the, the working class yep. uh, and a, a lack of social spending, which would have lessened this keen frustration, you know, if, if minimum wage was higher, health care was guaranteed child care was there we had enough public housing mm -hmm. these movements would be there but they'd be more on the margins like they used to be but this reminds me of the meme and i've mentioned this a few times over the last couple of weeks of the kid on the bike who's reaching down to put a stick in the spoke as he's cycling and then cusses out everything but himself in the stick for knocking him off the bike because he was putting the <laughs> stick in the spokes in the first place. The voters have to accept some responsibility for their own shortcomings and what we're dealing with now. I'm going to take a quick break. I want to pick right back up on that thought as we finish the show today. We're on with Mal Hyman, sociology professor, Coca University on The Ron Show, America One Radio, or wherever you podcast. Final segment of the Ron Show for Thursday. We're on with Coker University sociology professor, my good friend Mal Hyman, who has run for Congress a couple of times, and we're going to try and talk him into doing that again. Or do I even need to talk you into it? Are you kind of considering it? I'm leaning that direction. Love I guess it. seriously exploring. Love it. love it, love it. Well, as as I mentioned before, you 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 know you know the lingo. You know how to talk to folks. Uh, Again, you are a sociology professor, and I guess you should know how to talk to common folk if you're a sociology professor. Uh, but also, you know what you're talking about. So uh, we obviously, with with all the Lauren Boberts and Marjorie Taylor Greens, Matt Gates's, and Jim Jordans, we could use a Mal Hyman or five or ten in Congress. So um, you, you just Thanks. let me know when you need the help with that. I wanted to get back to the conversation we were having about how the American voter, the the the, the voter that perpetually either doesn't show up for midterms. I think that's a different voting block or the one that shows up all the time continuing to vote for their cult of personality, uh, upset about the, their economic plight or uh, otherism, this, that, and the other. But aren't, isn't the call coming from inside the house? Aren't they themselves sometimes the problem? They are. And I think we're the middle class is wealthier than biblical kings could have dreamed of being. We also have the most distractions in the history of humanity. Mm -hmm. I mean, AI is now telling you, listen to this music. You might like this movie. Here's a book you might like to read. I mean, we, we have more entertainment 24-7, and I can see it with my students, but it's pervasive in society because everybody has a cell phone. Now, that doesn't excuse it, 
but it does mean that we have more distractions and the general tendency of going to news sources that don't challenge you mm -hmm. very much also leaves people with less sophisticated ideas about what's going on in a very complicated global economy and a complicated democratic system. And we don't value democracy well. Mm -hmm. We don't teach it and practice it starting in kindergarten. We give it one semester at most in high school. You're mm -hmm. not required to take a class in college. So we're not, we're not as involved as folks are in many other advanced industrial societies. So yes, yeah, low information voters make more bad decisions. But also, that is a part of it. Do you think, and you've traveled the world more than I have. In fact, I finally got my passport renewed, so I'm going gangbusters here the next few years. Um, do you also feel like this is a uniquely American trait that we just can't accept blame? We can't take blame for something that we are guilty of. We don't. We don't want to admit that. Like you know, we've we've fumbled the ball, we've screwed the pooch on climate change, and now we've have we're having the hottest summer ever on record, and that's probably going to be the coolest summer we have for the next 10, 20 years, if if not longer. But we don't want to admit oh, we really screwed that up. Yeah, I think there is a sense of uh, American exceptionalism that we do as well as can be done, and we don't tend to honestly look at what other societies are doing on everything from energy to healthcare to minimum wage, right. to how they're dealing with questions of gender and race. We tend to look at ourselves. And Martin Luther King talked about this, and where do we go from here, his book in 1967. And one of the lines that I remembered was, America has everything to teach others and nothing to learn from them. Mm. And there's a lot of that that goes on today. The shorthand is to say American exceptionalism. Because as soon as you start comparing our system with other systems, you realize we have a lot to learn from them. And we shouldn't be just buying, you know, good wine from them or good cars from other <laughs> countries. We actually can look at some of their social structure and yes. their culture. But we tend to be very much more provincial than we'd like to believe. It reminds me of that opening line in the newsroom, that HBO series where Jeff Bridges' character just, uh, you know, goes off about how we're not the number one country. We're not the best at this. And he listed off all the things that we rank well below average on. Anyway, Professor Mal Hyman, Coker University sociology professor, and my good friend. Dude, thank you so much for giving me some time today. Pleasure to join you. Same here, my man. That is going to do it for The Ron Show today. Thank you for listening on the America One Radio app, AmericaOneRadio.com, or wherever you podcast. Back here tomorrow, 5 to 6 p.m. Have yourself a great Thursday evening. We'll see you.